Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Commit this time in the word to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are your sheep. You have remade us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. You've given us ears to hear. Open our ears, Lord, that we may hear your voice. Open up our even our mouths so that we would receive the pure, undefiled milk of the Word, and thereby be sanctified, conformed to the image of our Savior, who we love because He first loved us. Bless our time, Father. May Your Word not return void, but may it transform us. May it strengthen us to be good stewards of Your Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's open our Bibles together to Daniel chapter 2. And I think this, keeping my fingers crossed here, will be our last message, at least in this section, concerning the the stone cut out without hands that becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. What a prophecy, what a promise. And as I have said many times, we live in the midst of that unfolding promise. It's not something that happens instantaneously. It's a reality that is seen and witnessed and experienced gradually as Christ executes his conquering work over all of creation. The stone that became a mountain, part four, our verses once again are Daniel 2, 34 through 35, and verses 44 through 45. So we'll read those, and we will continue on in our study. So I invite you to follow, follow along with me. Uh, verse 34, You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Make sure you mark that last portion of verse 35. Continuing on, verses 44 and 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. May God be blessed by the reading of His Word. So here we go. We are unpacking. We are doing our best to understand and interpret in in the fullest sense without being completely exhaustive on this. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He is that head of gold, as we know, and so we spent the first uh, sermon in this little mini-series in Daniel chapter 2 simply exploring the meaning of of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What, what, does, what does the statue mean, this, this statue with a, with a head of gold, right? descending downward into feet of iron and clay? We talked about that, but we didn't want to miss the most significant part of that. It is what happens to this statue. And we read that this stone, a stone cut off without hands, destroys this statue And then, not stopping there, grows. It becomes a mountain that fills the entire world. And we've interpreted that. Again, it's hard to just take that and say, oh, it means this one thing. There are many layers. Yes, it points to Jesus Christ, but it also points to his kingdom and the inevitable growth of that kingdom, a kingdom which subdues other kings, a kingdom which will fill the entire world. And of course, Anyone who calls themselves a Christian and a follower of Christ rejoices in that reality. And not only that, but should ask themselves, okay, what is, what is my part in that? How is the Lord going to use me as his ambassador to faithfully proclaim the good news of that kingdom so that, so that rock continues to grow? Because it's certainly not done by our own power and wisdom. It's done by the wisdom and power of God, really his Holy Spirit working through his people. And so that should be a constant question on our mind is, how is God using me as his humble instrument, his humble holy instrument to bring to bear 
the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he is glorified, so that he stands alone as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know what he does without equal. He is the only true king, and we worship him accordingly. And so we are talking about the rock, right? We are talking about what the rock says, what the rock proclaims, because this is not something that the rock whispers. This is something that the rock itself shouts. Think of the inherent might of a rock, of a big rock. Now, if a rock could talk, how mighty would it be? How powerful? How awesome would it be? How, how difficult would it be to not notice it? And so we must think of it in those terms. What does the rock, what does the mountain, this mountain of God, proclaim? And so far we have gotten through a few, and I would, I'm hoping and praying we can get through the rest of them today. There are three more but I would like to present, and I think the first one will take much longer than the others, but they all, I want us to see how they all tie together. All of them relate to one another in a very significant way. So here's the first one that we went over, is that the mountain proclaims God's distinction of his own kingdom, right? His kingdom is not like other kingdoms. Though it is ruled by the glorified man, Jesus Christ, it, is, it stands apart, it stands distinct, and it stands, importantly, above, exalted above every other kingdom of man, and ultimately destroys, puts them down, subdues them, makes them bow the knee. That's a great promise that we behold in Scripture, friends, is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, the saints will be vindicated. The whole world may, at, at, at this point, be wondering, what are we doing bowing the knee to Christ? What are we doing worshiping Him, serving Him as His people? What are we doing loving this Messiah who is seated at the right hand of power? One day, the whole world will do what we are doing. They will bow the knee. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he holds the name above every name, and that God the Father will be glorified in that. Even in the subduing and destruction of his enemies, God is glorified, and the church can say amen to that. But as Christians, we must recognize the distinction of that kingdom, that it, is not, it does not work as other kingdoms do, nor is it temporary. It is eternal. It is not limited as kingdoms of men are. It is unlimited even in its scope and eventually its geography. It will, this mountain, subdue the entire world. This mountain also proclaims God's devotion to his son. We've talked about the father's inherent supreme love for his son, his supreme love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in that devotion, he gives his son a kingdom over which to rule. Thirdly, the mountain proclaims God's desire to fellowship with man. We'll be talking a little more about the implications of that today. But the mountain demonstrates that as it grows, so, does, so is God's desire to fellowship with man revealed. That everywhere, all over the world, as the gospel is proclaimed, God is making the earth his special dwelling place with man. So that wherever you look, as the gospel goes forward, yes, over here, over here in Colorado Springs, God dwells with man. Over there in the, in the Sudan, God dwells with man. Over there on the, on the outer ranges of Mongolia, God dwells with man. That is the mission, that is the purpose of the gospel, that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God and that man can draw near to fellowship with him. Here's another thing. The mountain proclaims God's delight in his children. That was the subject of last week's study. The mountain proclaims God's delight in his children, that as he draws near, he does not draw near in wrath. Rather, he draws near in love and grace and provision. He is present with us in the Holy Spirit, and he bestows that love and goodness on his church, on his people. So that is something that we don't want to overlook concerning the mountain, is that for the Christian, the mountain coming near to us, the mountain growing, demonstrates God's love and provision for us, that he gives us every grace necessary to live and to thrive and to be faithful to the living God. That's fourthly. So we're going to try to get through five, six, and seven today, but at least, at least number five. So fifthly, and this one I think springs forth from the others, it is fifthly, the mountain proclaims God's design to renew creation. 
The mountain proclaims God's design to renew creation. I think that walks very well, and I would say very preciously, hand in hand with God's desire to fellowship with man. Because as God renews creation, we see that fellowship with man grow. We see that provided in in an abundant way. One of the verses that we... Uh, that, that points us to our understanding of this new creation is found in the book of Second Peter. And we talked about this probably a little over a year ago as we were going through Second Peter. But as Peter is describing, if you want to turn there, this coming judgment on Jerusalem and, and the old creation, it gives us this really amazing promise. I'll give you a little moment to turn there. 2 Peter 3, verses 13, after this, after this old creation is burnt up, melting with intense heat, we have this precious promise, because that's not, that's not all there is to say. I mean, if it ended there, we should say, well, what, what next, Lord? But here he says it. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in, writ, in which righteousness dwells. So even back from the first century, the first century church, they were aware of this. They were looking for the unfolding, the revealing of this new creation. We are looking for a new heavens and new earth, which is what? Characterized by righteousness. And of course, we, simply, we would look at today's world, and I know that in our worst days, we, we have a very difficult time finding any good thing, which is terrible. We ought to be inclined to see the redemptive work that Christ is doing and not to be all doom and gloom, but what we would say, yes, this world is characterized by unrighteousness, but according to His promise, right, and think about how this relates to the mountain. The mountain represents, among other things, God's kingdom, and His kingdom is a righteous kingdom. His kingdom is characterized by righteousness. His kingdom will be a kingdom which reigns over this new heavens and new earth. That's how they connect, and it will be characterized by righteousness. And so, one thing we have to understand here in Peter's use of the new, this new heaven and new earth, is is very important because he uses the word kainos, not neos. So, those are two Greek words for new. So, kainos refers to new in quality as opposed to new in time. And that is why I use this verse to say, I do not believe that Scripture teaches that this present creation will be annihilated and will burn away. It is going to be restored. It is going to be renewed. So, it is newness in quality. It is to be restored, not newness in time. I mean, we we understand Paul teaching the same thing about the glorified, resurrected body, do we not? This, like, you, you will still be you, just new, resurrected, just glorified. As Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, this corruption, this corruptible must put off that corruptible and then put on incorruption. So this newness is to be understood more as a restoration a restoration of what was lost in Adam and yet is regained and, I would say, exalted in Christ. And that is what the mountain proclaims. God's very design, even from the fall, even from before that, because God knows history exhaustively, to renew His creation, to restore life to it, and ultimately to exalt it. We have said, what is the purpose of the gospel? The purpose of the gospel is not merely to save souls, friends. The purpose of the gospel is to make heaven and earth one once again, and that is accomplished through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling sinners to repent so that they too believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and become His faithful ambassadors as well. Living stones, living stones to be added to this mountain that grows. So that is what we call a restoration, and God has always designed to do that rather than simply wipe it all out. No, He judges the old creation, and He restores what was lost in Adam, what was lost in the Garden of Eden, and then restores it in Christ so that Christ may reign as the new and living and last Adam, never to be another one. So that's the very foundation of our teaching today is Jesus Christ Himself who we proclaim, Jesus Christ who was born, who died and who rose again and is currently sitting at the right hand of power, the right hand of the Father, 
currently, right now, ruling and reigning over the nations. As Revelation 1 says, he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. So that is not in doubt. We are not awaiting a future reign of Christ. We are waiting for the consummation, the fullness of that rule and reign. But right now, make no mistake, he is reigning, ruling over the nations, exercising the power that will bring all things in subjection to himself. The key verse for that is Philippians 3.21, if you want to mark that down. It, it speaks of Jesus Christ as the one who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. So as Christ is glorified, so will we be. By the exertion, listen to this, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And in that subjection of all things to himself, we see the restoration of the cosmos. And it is Christ exercising his power that is going to make that a reality, but is currently making that a reality. Think in terms of process, of progress over a long period of time, not so much immediacy, even though there are immediate things concerning the kingdom of God. But by and large, we see these things unfold as time, as time goes by. So Philippians 3.21 is key in our understanding of the restoration of creation. And so this is immensely significant in our understanding of, of Daniel using this mountain motif. What are you know what what are, what do we what do we what comes to mind when we think of stones and rocks and mountains? They're not only strong and formidable, but note this because this language is very deliberate, and I think it continues this theme throughout Scripture: is that stones and mountains are building materials for altars and temples. Okay, altars and temples. What what are altars and temples for? What are those key places in? What activity of life? Worship. Very good. Yeah, altars and temples are key components of worship. In fact, we've hardly known of worship with, with the absence of a temple, because what, what is worship? It's, it's being in the presence of God, ascribing to God, usually in song, the, his, his own worth. That's why we, we ascribe to the Lord glory and honor. honor. We ascribe to the Lord praise. We ascribe to the Lord power. We are, we are ascribing the things that are due to His name. We are, dis, we are ascribing things to him that are true about him. And that is done in a temple. And so, you know, we've talked about, this, there, there, and there's quite a bit of overlap too. When you think about worship, when you think about the, God communing with man, there are, there are several, there are different important overlapping motifs. Now, we've already talked about the mountain. A mountain is a meeting place between God and man. And we talked about the pattern in Scripture where God picks a mountain and he meets with a significant character in the Bible. And we would say the most significant was the mountain of Golgotha where he punished Christ in our place for the sins of his people. Right? And now, as a church, we go together. We ascend the mountain of the Lord. We ascend the true and living Zion, and we worship in the true Jerusalem, ascribing to God the glory do his name. So we have the mountain. But where is that? The temple. Well, the church is the true temple. So you have the mountain as the meeting place between God and man where the temple is. In this case, that's us. That's the church. Okay. But what is the, what is the environment? What is the environment where the temple is located on this mountain? One more, one more important theme. You got the temple. You got the mountain. What else is needed? What, 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 become, what, what, is, the, what is the purpose of the work of the living temple of God. What's the environment? It's not a desert, but it's a, a garden. It's a garden. See, this is where this huge theme of restoration of creation comes in. As the mountain grows, we also see the temple grow, and we see the garden grow. We are seeing restored what was lost in Adam's fall. And it's no coincidence that when God breathes into the man the breath of life and man becomes a living soul, where does he place the man? He places the man in a garden, not a desert. Right? Puts him in a garden to cultivate it, right? He gives Adam a, a particular responsibility. If you want to turn to Genesis really quickly, it says that very thing. He gives, he gives, man, he gives man a task. In Genesis 1, verse 28, when he creates man in his own image, says, God bless them, 
That is the man and his wife. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So there's a lot going on there, right? Have, be fruitful, have babies, have children, subdue the earth. That is, put it down by force. Bend it to your will as God's representative. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And so, in Genesis 2, verse 15, it, it further documents not only the creation of man, but man's responsibility. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to what? To cultivate it and to keep it. So, he was to work the land, and I would say a blessed land, a thereunto uncursed land, and then he says to keep it. What is the significance of that? Well, the word used here for keep is understood also as to guard. Adam is to guard the temple, or the temple of this garden. This is the same responsibility, note this, this is the same responsibility given to the Levitical priests. They are to guard the tabernacle, and then after the temple is built, they are to guard the temple. From what? From hostile invaders, from those who are unholy and not welcome. I mean, that's significant when you look at the, at the end of the book of Revelation, what is, what is being kept out of this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and new earth, this new garden? Unholy things, those things that are unholy and profane, that do not belong in the holy presence of God, that have not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, that have not been prepared and consecrated. They are, they are kept out. They are not welcome. So that was Adam's job. And of course, as we see in Genesis 3, Adam failed in this task. He failed to guard the temple. He failed to protect his wife. And so what happened? He was kicked out of the garden. He was kicked out of the temple. So man, so, so man has a huge issue there. Lots of them. Lots of problems happened. Among them death. Among them sin. Among them a curse over all creation. But what happened here that is significant is man Man's calling, man's purpose was severely compromised. He was kicked out of his own temple that he was supposed to cultivate and garden. I have maintained many times before that the purpose of the Garden of Eden and the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying was to have holy, righteous offspring that would also join in that work of cultivation and guarding so that the whole earth would be a garden, the whole earth would be a temple, the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Adam failed. It's really, it's really tragic when you actually stop and consider how profoundly Adam fell, right? He didn't merely fall off the wagon, as one theologian says. He fell out of orbit and was obliterated on impact. That's how bad it was. And so it's obvious to say, you know, what's the point of all this? Well, we need to be restored. We need to be restored to this work. The problem is that no one is worthy to be restored to this work except one, and that is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who brings this restorative power to creation. It is Jesus Christ who brings back the garden to us so that we can dwell with God in fellowship. That's really what the garden represent, rep represents. It's not just that God is dwelling with us. It's that God is dwelling with us in fellowship, that we draw near to God and experience His presence, His grace, His blessings, and, to, and we see, we witness firsthand His restorative power at work. That is contained in the promise of the gospel, to bring life, right? But to also restore fellowship, that we can dwell alongside God in the sanctuary, in the new Eden, without fear of being kicked out ever again, right? Because the one who represents us, our great high priest, see, Adam was a priest, right? Adam was a priest who failed in his duty. So did the Levitical priests. But Jesus Christ, our great high priest, succeeded living a life of perfect faithfulness. And now that he represents us in the new Eden, in the new Jerusalem, in the new mountain, in the new garden, in the new all of these things, in the new temple, so you see all the overlap here, we never as Christians have to ever fear being kicked out. Right? As long as the Father accepts Christ. This is the great hope of the Christian. Don't miss this. As long as the Father receives Christ, He receives us. So something very terrible would have to happen, something that really defies imagination, for the Christian to ever be kicked out of the presence of God, 
to ever be alienated from him, he would have to alienate his own son. And he's never going to alienate his own son, such as his love and devotion to him. Such are the accomplishments of Christ. So take hope today. If you are on the precipice, if you feel hopeless, remember that whoever comes to Christ, he will in no wise cast out. The Father himself will not cast out those who trust in his one and only beloved Son. What a great hope we have. The restoration of this creation, I would say, just so you have a good resource, G.K. Beale, God Dwells Among Us, talks at length about this most important theme of the garden. So I am indebted to him for the explanation of that. I'm trying to distill it all here. But one of the ways we understand also this restoration of creation is that it is promised in the prophets. If you read Isaiah 65 and 66, both, in both, both of these prophecies, God speaks of a new heaven and new earth. So Isaiah 65, 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So you think about that. All the sorrow, right? All of the corruption, all the sin and death, right? Anything that was Anything that was basically the dregs of Adam's fall are no more, nor, nor will they call to mind. See, we will, in the new heavens and new earth, when the full consummation comes, the Christian, the, the church will be so full of joy, we will not even bother to bring up all those things that brought death, sin, and sorrow. So overflowing will, will our joy be, they will never be remembered nor come to mind. Doesn't mean they never happened, but we can live life as if they never did. Certainly in the here and now, God treats us as if those things never happen. And one day we will live life as though those things never happen. And then he says, but be glad and rejoice for what, forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Now I realize if you were an Israelite living in those days, especially in the days of exile, and you heard about this, this um, new heaven and new earth, and you hear even the word Jerusalem, what you are going to think of as a Jew, is the temple in geographical Jerusalem. But as, but as these prophecies are fulfilled, they're fulfilled in a much greater way, right? The mountain of the Lord, right? If you were a Jew, you would think of it as just this local mountain, local geography. But in its, in, its, uh, in its fullness, in its fulfillment, it becomes much more. It becomes a worldwide phenomenon, so as Christians, we can understand Jerusalem as ultimately the new Jerusalem of which we are citizens, the Jerusalem above rather than the old apostate Jerusalem due to destruction. And we can be glad in it. And it says in verse 19, I also will rejoice in Jerusalem. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. That is the characteristic of the new creation. Imagine that. Imagine all the sorrow that we endure, even as God's people. And we witness that sorrow as we see much of society spiral out of control into further unbelief. And of course, the fruits of that are readily observed by crying, by death, by weeping, by sorrow, by a profound kind of hopelessness. And yet, in the promise of the new heavens and new earth, there is, there is joy, there is blessing. And to, and to kind of gather in this mountain motif with the garden once again, if you go to verse 25 of Isaiah 65, we read this, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. See, nothing changes for the serpent. It may change for the majestic lion, but not for the serpent. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That is the expectation of the new heavens and new earth. And all these, these images of wolf and lamb and serpent and lion and ox symbolize the peace, right? The shalom that has returned to earth because it has been restored. It has been restored by the work of Christ. See, what Adam failed, Christ. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Christ returned. He, is, he guards the temple. He is the true and faithful high priest. He is the true man who represents his people. And don't miss this. What did, what did the Lord tell Adam to do? He said, fill the earth. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. And what is this mountain doing? What is this mountain doing once 
the stone cut out without hands, and it becomes a mountain that does what? Fills, fills the earth. Don't miss the significance of that. The earth will be filled, but it will be filled by the offspring of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness, the true and faithful man who represents his people. Listen to this promise as described by Zechariah, Zechariah 2.4, where the angel is speaking to him and says to him, run, speak to that young man saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle with it. So this idea we have of Jerusalem being an isolated city will grow along with the garden, along with the mountain, along with the temple. All of these things will grow, and they all point to this same thing, God dwelling with his people in love and fellowship and blessing, where the sanctuary of the new Eden, where the Garden of Eden has been restored and continues to grow just as God designed it to be. And so we know that as the mountain fulfills the whole earth, as goes the mountain, so goes the garden. And as goes the garden, so goes where man is able to meet with God, dwelling together in perfect peace. Where God is king and man, headed by our great high priest, is also his priest and representative. That's why we say the dominion mandate never went away, but it's been exalted, right? We're no longer in Adam destined for death and destruction. We are now in Christ. We are his priests. That's why, that's why Peter is so deliberate when he, when he calls the saints a royal priesthood, right? The priesthood, spe- he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles, mind you. He's saying you're a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, people for God's own possession, right? All of these things would have been ascribed only to the Jewish race. But now in Christ, it's, descri- it's ascribed to all of those who believe. Because that restorative work is taking place amongst every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And so now we, as believers in Jesus Christ, as provided by the new covenant in His blood, operate as His priests. And so we do the same thing, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. We are God's stewards, we guard the temple, and we cultivate. And, and in our work, whether, whether it's digging ditches or proclaiming the gospel, that work is meaningful, it's significant, and it brings glory to God. And He uses that to bring to bear the new creation. Listen to this restoration promise in Ezekiel. The pro- read the prophets, especially Isaiah and Ezekiel, very, very comforting, very hopeful. In Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 33, we read this, Thus says the Lord, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. So this is primarily pointing to a promise of return to exile, but ultimately God's restoration plan for all of the world. Verse 35, listen to this. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. You see, they, they believe the stories. These weren't just myths. These were true historical events. There was a real Garden of Eden where God and his wife walked, or God, God walked with the man and his wife in perfect peace and in perfect grace and blessing. Right. And he's saying that's going to happen again. That's going to happen again to the people of God. Here's another one about this about fruitful being fruitful and multiplying. Ezekiel 36, 10 through 11. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities will be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast and they will increase and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Now, how do we experience this betterness? Well, it is clear from the book of Hebrews that the new covenant being new is also better. It is superior to what the old provided. It's superior in its priesthood. It's superior in its promises. It's superior in every way. Because at its head is Jesus Christ, who is superior over all things, being the radiance of the glory of God. And we will know, we do know that He is the Lord. 
Ezekiel 37, 26 through 28, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations, see this, this goes beyond the borders of Israel. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. See, we are in the age where the nations come flocking, right? We hear the word of the cross. And as God gives us ears to hear, we come flocking in. And then, of course, we provoke Israel to jealousy. And then the Jews turn, trust trust in Christ alone, and are saved. So here here we hear this, this promise of the temple, the garden, the sanctuary where God and man dwell together in peace, returning, right, and being a growing reality. And where does that find its place primarily? Who is the true temple? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He even describes himself as a temple. In John 2, verse 19, Through 21, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. See, Jesus is the true temple, and as his spirit dwells in our midst, we also are the temple of the living God. But he uses the temple as a metaphor to refer to his own body, and that he would die, and yet rise again in three days. Jesus says also in Matthew 12, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the greater temple. The temple will go away, but Jesus will remain forever, and so will his people. That was the problem with apostate Judaism. They couldn't think beyond that temple. They couldn't think beyond that mountain. And yet Jesus came and clearly says, yes, people will no longer only worship on this mountain. They will worship everywhere in spirit and in truth so that the whole world will be a mountain. John 1.14, one of our favorites, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, he tabernacled among us. Jesus became the meeting place between God and man. And as our high priest continues to be that meeting place to this day, and will so be forever. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent as if to say, I'm going to stay here a while. And so he remains through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, faithful to that word. Consider also Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And within that redemptive work is the very work of redeeming all of creation. So we understand Jesus as the true temple, right? And so the book of Hebrews introduces to us this great shakedown, right? This great shakedown of heaven and earth that's going to happen. What is not shaken will remain. What will remain? The new heaven and new earth. This shakedown has to do with the, the doing away, the, 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 basically the loosing of this old system. And as that happens, what is true, what has been established by God, what is being preserved by God will remain, will outlast this shakedown. And, the, and only the true temple will stand. And that is Christ and that is his people. We know that we are the true temple. We are told by the Apostle Paul, even as individuals, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know? It's as if this, this truth took some time to sink in. We do well for it to sink into our own minds. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? We don't belong to ourselves. We can't make, we can't claim a right to ourselves. No, God has a claim on us, and that should give us great joy, because any claim we have on ourselves is going to be dashed to pieces. If God claims us as His own, we live. If not, we die. We die horribly, and we die eternally. And because God has claimed us, because we are that temple, far be it from us to defile that temple, 
to allow sin to remain unchecked. We are, as Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, living sacrifice. That's where the altar comes in, right? Now we lay ourselves on the altar, as it were, as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship, Paul says. So when we surrender ourselves to God's purposes, that is a reasonable service, as one translation says, but it is a spiritual act of worship. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, 22, speaking to the corporate church. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundations, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So that's once again how this all fits together. The dwelling place of God, the sanctuary, the stones, the altar, the garden, the priesthood, all of it fits together. All of it comes to bear as this mountain subdues all that stand against it and grows and fills the whole earth. So the earth will be filled with the very glory of God. And so now by faith in Christ, we have access to this very temple, to this very garden. And then finally in Revelation, again kind of representing the consummation of this entire redemptive work, in Revelation 21-22, let's just turn there, Revelation 21-22, he describes, remember the great, the great holy city Jerusalem descending down uh, out of heaven from God. This is the real Jerusalem, right? But what does it look like? It's like a big city, but a big, a big temple. In verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, however you interpret those passages, it is pretty awesome. It is glorious. fills us with great hope that this new creation, this restored creation is one that God by His very power and through His Son is bringing to bear and bringing to light. It descends, becomes an ever-increasing reality and presence. This is the view. See, this is, this is our text, right? When we say heaven and earth are becoming one again, this is what we're talking about. The new Jerusalem is becoming one with earth. And it says... In the daytime, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. See, the nations are streaming in, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination are lying, and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who are they? Us, Christians, believers, the elect, God's people. Right? That is the fullness of that. Right? So you have all these overlapping themes, as Daniel describes specifically as a mountain, that fills the whole earth. And that's why, again, this, this very precious passage, Revelation 21.4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell with men, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. In a new heaven and new earth, fully restored, and yet, this is something we always like to say, God is not merely taking us back to Eden. He's not merely restoring what was lost. He's restoring what was lost and exalting it. Because the old Eden could be lost. The old Eden could be forfeit. But in the new Eden, when God brings us in, we are there to dwell with Him forever. This new Eden is eternal, not subject to corruption, not subject to decay or forfeiture. Once it is ours, it is ours forever because God said so. And we rest in His Word. So it looks like we have some time. So I guess, I guess I'll just keep going here. So that's point, that's point number five. So here's the next thing, if I can find it here. It's, see, it proclaims God's design to renew creation. Sixthly, it proclaims God's destruction of his enemies. Right. Now, we, while we do not rejoice in some perverse fashion in the death of the wicked, we do rejoice that God has vindicated his own glory and righteousness. Right. And this is one of the things, this is one of the inevitabilities of the growth of this mountain and the, and the advancement of the kingdom of God is that he will put down his enemies. And that's where we return to Daniel chapter 2. Verse 35, right? actually verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. Now, chaff is a very important theme in Scripture. Chaff, if you guys aren't familiar with what chaff is, uh, chaff is the loose outer covering on wheat, simple, simple, like a shell. Covers wheat and other grains, and during the harvest, they are brought into a threshing floor, and, and what is called a winnowing process begins, where you separate this chaff, which is ultimately useless, from, from the grain itself. Okay. So what happens is that this chaff was so light, so insignificant, all it had to do was be blown away by the wind. And you think, man, for all that, it's, this is something, guys, just kind of dawned on me here. Like, we really need to see things the way God sees them. I think we look at the kingdoms of this world, and we see them as so wicked, so insurmountable, so irresistible. It's like, what can we do? Well, if you ask, what can you do? You're asking the right question, because ultimately nothing. But we ask, what can God do? What can God do? See, that this chaff may seem so powerful to us, so opaque, right? So dangerous. And yet to God, it is chaff. A slight breeze blows it away, right? But to us, God is a mighty wind which does away with all these evil kingdoms, right? Everything that would stand as competition against Him. We may see it as difficult, but to God, it's a Tuesday, right? These things are nothing compared to the power of God and the kingdom of His Son. And so that's what happens to chaff. While the grain is crushed and beaten, the chaff winnowed away, blown away as nothing but a husk, separated from the wheat, that which is, that's what, that, that which is useful and edible and beneficial. But with chaff, basically all chaff is use, useful for is to be burnt. It's fuel for the fire. And that's what's going to happen with these other kingdoms. It's going to be fuel for the fire of judgment. Right? Even though it is an old house in which God is building to be crushed and replaced by a new one, it is still a house that is subject to judgment. And so, God will overcome this by the exercising of His own power and might. And in the new creation, it's inevitable. If in the new creation all these things are shut out, what is to become of these wicked, evil things? People, kingdom, all of them. They're, they are to be They are to be judged. They are to be done away with. They are to be overcome in everything associated with it, right? We we read that promise in the Gospel of John. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot stand against even a little bit of light. But what starts as a candle grows into a galaxy, a cluster of stars that is nearly unimaginable in in the light that it gives off. And so in overcoming and destroying his enemies, for one, on the, on the big scale, the old creation and everything associated is put down. It overcomes our enemy, the devil, right? That serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, the dragon himself. Hebrews 2.14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And today we still think of the devil as so powerful. It's amazing. It's like we act like the cross never did anything to Satan. We act like he still is just as in charge as he has ever been. We have to stop thinking like that, Christians. Christ is in charge. Christ is ruling. He has thrown out the former ruler of this world. And he rendered him powerless. Satan is on a leash right now. He is unable to deceive the nations. Christ has overcome the devil, and he continues to overcome him. It's like we imagine the, the, the crushing of the serpent's feet, or the, the crushing of the serpent's head. I think this crushing has happened, but what are we seeing now? We're seeing this. That's a good way of thinking of it. So if you encounter a snake on the trail, and it's dangerous, and you crush its head, just make sure to, to move your feet back and forth to make sure it's really dead. There's something that we underestimate concerning the devastating blow that was dealt to our great enemy. And I think it really encourages and empowers the church simply to be equipped with the knowledge of Christ's profound victory over the devil. So the old creation, the devil, even death itself, death, the last and great enemy of man is death. I thought of this, one of my favorite poems 
from the old nerdy days of English literature from John Donne called Death Be Not Proud. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom you think thou dost overthrow, die not. See, those you think you've killed don't die. That's us. Die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. It is thought that John Donne was saved out of, a, out of a life of deep and really perverse sexual sin, became a Christian, and started writing this, this stuff, this goodness. But then the conclusion, he says this, One short sleep past, we wake eternally. Talking about the resurrection. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. That alludes very clearly to 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your, is your sting? Though we may experience death for a little while, we will be resurrected. That is the promise that we have in our risen Lord. We have resurrection life, which ultimately not, over, not only defeats death, it kills death. That is the greatest irony in history, is that death itself dies. Death gets a taste, literally, of its own medicine. Right? He overcomes that. The old creation, the devil, sin and death. Because sin is death's sting. And where do we, this goes back to restoration of creation, right? Righteousness dwells there. Not sin, but righteousness. And we see that as the gospel goes forth, that the very power of sin is being overcome. As we are sanctified, we see via the living, living the risen life of Jesus Christ, we see the power of sin and its influence overcome in our lives. That's why it's completely contradictory to go back to the old life of sin. You're not a slave, so stop acting like it. Whatever, you, whatever sin you think enslaves you, don't buy that lie. If you are in Christ, you have been set free from the power of sin and death. So says Romans 8. Psalm 2 documents the, the king overcoming and subduing wicked nations and kings, right? Kiss the sun, lest ye perish in the way. Right? The sun ruling with a rod of iron from the true Zion. And even though we understand that paradise has not been consummated, God's victory in Christ over his enemies has already been decreed. Colossians 2:13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consist, debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. See, no more decrees, no more hostility, it's gone. Having nailed it to the cross, right? So if Satan wants to bring some kind of charge against us, he's got, he has to do what we've done. He's got to go to the cross. And at that point, why even bother? That's why all Satan can do at this point, friends, is lie to you. Don't buy it for a second. You go to the cross, because that is where we find this cancellation of our debts, our debts which we owed to God Himself because we sinned against Him. But it no longer has a claim on us. We look to the cross, and in there we find peace and comfort, knowing that God Himself is no longer angry at us and no longer condemns us. So nailed it to the cross when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is, principalities and powers, whether earthly powers or heavenly powers. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, right? You would think, looking at the cross, that Christ was defeated, that the cause of God was defeated. But ironically, it is those rulers and authorities who were defeated, who were put down. There you go. So, finally, finally, seventhly, I think we're on number seven. The mountain proclaims God's duty for his church, right? So we say, how do we apply all this? Well, we have a task, right? We have a task to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? What started as a stone becomes a mountain. How does the mountain become a mountain? God sends out his ambassadors, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to call other living stones so that the mountain grows and, gain, and gains ground, right? So we understand that from the Great Commission. Go therefore, Matthew 28, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. This is crucial. God uses people to do this. It's wild. God doesn't need us, but He wants to use us. Who are we to refuse? Who are we to make excuses? Who are we to be cowards? 
I was so blessed to see that street preaching yesterday, to see bold men stand there in Manitou Springs and call people to repent, to tell them to believe, right? to let them know that the kingdom of God is here and it is growing. Right? Don't, don't, don't fall under judgment. Don't be caught in unbelief. Don't, you know, death comes suddenly. Death comes unexpectedly. Who's going to stand with you when you stand before the throne? Are you going to stand with Adam? Are you going to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ as your representative? Whose righteousness are you relying on? Right? I mean, now is the time, right? The fields are white for harvest. Let's go out and call all men to repent. After all, as Paul rightly concludes Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not, heard, have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Right? Guys, the time for thinking that someone else is going to do it is over, right? Sometimes, honestly, like we need to humble ourselves. If it is cowardice indeed, we need to admit that we're cowards and be bold and put on the armor of God and stand against the wiles of the devil because after everything has happened to us, we will, we're going to be the ones standing. So if it's really that, it's time to confess that, right? Lay it at the throne of grace and plead with the Lord, give me courage, give me courage to preach the truth, even to people who hate it, because you have to keep in mind, you were once that person. You were once that person who hated God. You were once that person who didn't want to hear it. You were once that person who cursed and blasphemed, and now you are preaching the truth. We were like Paul in that regard. The very truth we were trying to destroy, the very truth that we despise, now we can't shut up about. I wish there were more people like that. I wish I was one of them. God save me and others from being a coward because even the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's some great application for you. But we can preach anticipating, anticipating that the gospel will save souls and bring about that restoration of creation. And that is why Paul could say, Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, right? We have to start believing that the gospel is powerful again, right? It's not, it's not that the gospel has power. The gospel is power. It is the power of God itself. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we as are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us, right? He uses us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's something else that I've noticed yesterday that was really blessed by. It's like, we're pleading for men. Like, hey, you, don't walk away. I saw that middle finger. I heard, I heard you say that, that word, right? I'm not afraid of you. We urge you all the more. Be reconciled to God because God saves blasphemers. He saves those who do not believe and He makes them believers. The thing we have to remember this is not done overnight, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. The kingdom of God, though established through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is not built in a day, right? It is the stone cut out without hands that becomes a mountain which fills the earth. This is perfectly explained in the kingdom parables. I'll read you a small passage here, Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So say, there's, there's plenty of branches. See, all, of, all the nations can come and rest in this tree and find shelter in Christ. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Now, many of you la ladies out there, many of you wives out there, you have been, you've become obsessed with sourdough bread lately. You become, you become obsessed with freshly baked bread. I know you. Don't put your head down. I know who you are. God bless you, right? But you see, you put the leaven in, and then that, that dough just grows. It's like a miracle, right? That's the same thing the gospel's going to do. Right? We're gonna, there's, there's no part of that bread that the leaven doesn't affect. In the same way, there's going to be no part of the world that the gospel will not eventually come to affect and impact and conquer. Right? It happens over time. Stay the course. Persevere. Don't grow weary. Right? I know you're tired of it. I know you feel like you've gone the distance and you've gone through a whole lot and you're like, I just want to give up because I'm not bearing any fruit. Don't be discouraged when you don't see progress right away. Jeremiah preached for years without a single convert that we know of, 
right? Did that present the new covenant that he preached about from coming to pass? No. Think about that. That word that was deemed worthless in Jeremiah's day is the very word that we proclaim and believe today. Think about Athanasius, Saint Athanasius, right? The world was against him. Well, he says, well, I'm against the world. He didn't give up. And now we have the Nicene Creed and correctly worship Jesus as very God, a very God, begotten, not made. Perseverance. And he was exiled and excommunicated many times. They kept bringing him back in and sending him back out. Man, imagine, imagine you guys doing that to me. Jonathan, you're not welcome here. Hey, Jonathan, come back. All right, Jonathan, you said that. Get out of here. Hey, Jonathan, come back. Holy mackerel. Like, who, can, who could stand that, right? William Wilberforce fought for the abolition of slavery in England, in the British Empire, actually, until he had to retire from Parliament in 1826 due to health. And seven years later, in 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act was passed. Think about it in the context of the fight against human sacrifice and abortion. You keep fighting because you know one day that very religion will be, that very God will be put under Christ's feet. So stay faithful, stay the course, don't give up. Okay, I know we're kind of out of time, but I want to say one thing, one more thing to you by way of application, because this is a generational application, so keep this in mind. It's just been, it's just been hot on the burner for a while. But one application in all of this regarding the restoration of heaven and earth, right, as far as the mountain is concerned, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ putting down his enemies and regarding this sacred task that we have to proclaim the gospel to the nations, anticipating great things, okay? First and foremost, apply these promises to your household because here is the double error we've made, right? Just, just hear me out, okay? We talk about all the blame that we give, all the, tr- all the problems with public schools, right? What is public school teaching our kids? A, a really perverse form of nihilistic materialism. There's no God. He didn't create you. You, you, you. you emerged out of this cosmic goo. You really don't have any purpose, purpose. There's no transcendent truth, right? It's materialism. So really, all that's here is all that matters, right? But conversely, See, we, we, we say, well, we got to pull our kids out of public school. But the thing is, is what are you as parents teaching your kids? Right. And I think one thing we've done is the opposite. We've not taught them materialism. We've, taught, we've made the opposite mistake and taught them Gnosticism. Here's what I mean by that. Whereas the public schools teach kids that only materialism matters, we've taught our kids that only heaven matters. It's not about earthly things at all. It's only about heaven. It's only about eternity. It's only about the future. So what are we doing to them? We're teaching them, and in, in some sense, we're teaching them the very same thing that public schools are, just in a different way. What you do here really doesn't matter, doesn't have an effect, because it's all going to burn anyway. We have to stop teaching our kids that. We have to teach our kids that Christ is going to restore creation and that he, he has called them out of death into life so that he can use them as, the, as his holy instrument to preach the very word that restores heaven and earth and that restores heaven to earth. See, it's a both and. It's not either or. See, don't be Gnostics. Don't pass this off to your kids. Let's not raise, an- take this in stride. Let us not raise another generation of losers who expect nothing from God. Teach them that creation, though corrupted by sin, is loved by God, and that its curse is being lifted through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that He desires to restore it to its original purpose. Teach your kids to draw near to God, to dwell with Him through faith in Christ, their high priest, representative, and king. Teach them that. Teach them that even in this life, they can make a difference, that they are instruments of this mountain, right? This mountain that is growing in the here and now. Because if we throw it in the far-flung future, what are we teaching our kids? You can't really make a difference. God's going to destroy this all anyway. Just survive. Just abide. Do your thing. Work quietly with your hands. Save souls. But don't expect any real redemptive creational work. That's what we've got to stop teaching our kids. Teach them that God created this world, that God loves this creation. He loves matter. He loves stuff. I mean, he wrote his word in a book, for goodness sakes. That should tell us something. 
He used ink and paper. We had to chop down trees to make these books, right? That's what we should teach them. That as the Holy Spirit empowers them through faith in Christ, they can make a difference, but they are the very instruments of that restorative process, and that when they preach the gospel and it's believed, an enemy is destroyed because an enemy has come to faith, right? And so the promises of God in Christ are fulfilled. Let us be faithful to preach, preach that to our kids, and let us encourage our kids to preach that very thing. I have spoken. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Daniel and, and the promises and the hope that it provides your people. May we cling to it. May we, oh Lord, may we have a death grip on it, ironically. Uh, may we trust in it, trust in your provision. These are your promises. You have spoken, Lord. And by your grace, we believe. Help our unbelief if there is unbelief in our midst. Let us pass this very hope on to our children, Lord, but they would be stewards, guardians of this new Eden that is being cultivated and growing. Though, re though resisted, it is growing inevitably as you put your people to work and we experience all your precious graces and promises. May that fill, fill us with hope this morning as we continue our worship, as we stand on the solid rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.